0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Engaging Gray Podcast. I'm really excited to be back with you today and to have Dr. Sandra Upton on with us today. Dr. Upton is the Vice President of of Global Diversity Practices with the Cultural Intelligence Center and is responsible for providing leadership and expertise on diversity, equity, and inclusion matters for the Cultural Intelligence Center clients across the globe. She has over 25 years of experience training and consulting with businesses, educational institutions, governmental agencies, and nonprofits around the globe. Sandra is also the subject matter expert for the center's work in unconscious bias and has led the center's unconscious bias certification programs across the globe. She is a frequent speaker and consults with numerous businesses and institutions on how effective in, how to effectively integrate cultural intelligence and unconscious bias assessments into training and businesses, educational settings. She travels frequently and is consulted with organizations and facilitated trainings in places such as Brazil, China, Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, Israel, Singapore, South Africa, and several countries throughout Europe. She and her husband, Robert, are the proud and excited empty nesters of two amazing college age children. And I am incredibly proud to have um, her on our podcast today. So Dr. Upton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so
1: much for inviting me, Mary. I'm very
0: happy to be here. Dr. Upton, we um, continue to be in such an interesting year where uh, not only do we have the coronavirus pandemic, our workplaces are shifting and looking wildly different. Our political system is at the center of our minds with the election just uh, about a month away now. And, you know, I think workplaces and especially business leaders, managers are trying to figure out so many different ways of engaging their employees virtually and how to, under, how to create space for these realities, but also to keep focus on work. And as a trainer and expert in cultural intelligence, how have you seen this capability, this, this framework uh, misunderstood but how how also could it be incredibly vital for this particular time that we find ourselves
1: sure i 'm not sure if it 's even been misunderstood um, in
0: fact, I think
1: you know our reach has been uh, quite wide um, you know for many years we have continued to grow um, as an organization as a company and Um, you know, work with both uh, folks in the corporate space and the nonprofit and the education space and governmental entities uh, all over the world. And certainly in the midst of this, you know, pandemic, and when I say pandemic, I'm actually referring to the pandemic of of racism, right, and systemic Mm -hmm. racism, Um, you know, the the demand for our work has has continued to increase. And so um, I think people, for the most part, are clear, big picture clear about Cultural intelligence right and and the fact that they uh, they and their employees and their teams need this skill in order to navigate effectively across cultures, I think where there's limited understanding um, is the role that cultural intelligence can can play in terms of addressing issues related to diversity equity, and inclusion, and specifically racism and so I think sometimes there is uh, there is a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding of how uh, CQ really can be a very powerful uh, and necessary strategy and solution for addressing issues of
0: race. Yes, and you wrote a fantastic uh, blog article about this because um, you you said it so much better than than I had. I've I've talked with many people of saying, well, it's a really nice thing, but I don't know how it helps me do this work. Yeah, right. And that's the work that we're really in the midst of in our country, perhaps and very much too late to to have this conversation, but we're having it. And so how do you see cultural intelligence um, being able to work effectively in this area of race and anti-racism work? Sure. Yeah, I, I think if we go back to look at some of the basic
1: definitions of what we mean by racism, what we mean by, you know, the, the... The, the word of the day is becoming an anti-racist or so the sentence of the day is all of us working to become anti-racist. But I think if we look at the definitions, right, so when we talk about racism, right, that, that's this underlying belief, right, in the superiority of one race over another and, and its right to dominate. Um, and you really can't um, be racist if you don't have power. So it's this combination of prejudice and power, which means that everybody can't be racist. You know, many of us can be prejudice but all of us can't be racist you can only really be racist if again you've got this belief in superiority um, of one race over another uh, but and there's this prejudice but it's also combined with this power right and and, and so the question becomes who has the power and we know mm-hmm. here in the U.S. we know here in West Michigan that it is a predominantly white uh, community uh, white culture that has Mostly the power influence over uh, a lot of these companies and uh, the systems that are in place, and so I'm not I'm not saying all races and all white people in in West Michigan are racist. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying when we look at the definition of racism, it it is it's a combination of both a prejudice towards another cultural group but you also have to have power in order to to have racism Um, and then when we look at uh, this whole idea of becoming an anti-racist you know that's simply someone who takes intentional action to oppose racism and racist systems and structures Uh, but in order to do that uh, in order to take that intentional action we believe that you need a skill to do that it's you can't just have a good attitude you can't just have a will um, and desire, those are all important things. You need to be motivated. But alongside that desire and will to, to take this action, it, it requires a set of skills. And that's where cultural intelligence can really come into play, right? So when we define yeah. cultural intelligence, it's the capability to function effectively in any cross-cultural context. Well, if we're going to function effectively, um, you know, we need to function effectively, that's as what I guess I want to say is, We need to function effectively when we are engaging with cultures uh, in order to to minimize racism, right, and to, to minimize racist systems. So to develop that skill set of being able to work effectively across cultures absolutely can contribute to us taking these intentional action steps to oppose racism and racist systems and structures.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense to me. I I wonder, you know, as I think of workplaces and how workplaces kind of define culture, and your point about working effectively across cultures i i know from from doing some cultural intelligence work that a big part is us getting to know what our own culture is right beginning to recognize oh this is my lens these are my cultural values and people can have different ones than me absolutely and do you how do you see especially because for many people it's really easy to think about that for another country Mm -hmm. right like oh that makes sense when I travel abroad, but when we think about you know America and America is wildly diverse, and we're huge, right? We are multiple you know countries put into one right when you look at our geography and our size um, and so how does knowing ourselves or doing that our own work to begin our to know our own cultural values and our own lens? play into cultural intelligence and being an anti-racist? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think, you know,
1: um, if we don't, like you said, we all have our own um, ways of thinking, right, and behaving and interacting. And those typically come from how we were raised and how we were socialized and the different experiences that we have. Uh, but so often we, we we do those things on autopilot. We don't even think much about it because that's just how we are, right? It's how we prefer to go about life and working with others. And we don't give it a, we don't give it a second thought. The problem or mm-hmm. challenge comes with, like you suggested, is when we are interacting with people who were also socialized and raised, you know, and have had experiences that are very different from ours. And then uh, if we're not careful, we go into those interactions Uh, assuming that they are going to have similar thinking and ways of wanting to interact. And when we don't understand that they come with a very different set of of values, then that's where all kinds of cross-cultural clashes can happen. And so, Mm -hmm. because it is an automatic thing and we don't give much thought to it just to step back and reflect and just really do an honest assessment of these, these really are the values that guide how I engage and, you know, they're, for the most part, there's nothing wrong with them, but how are they impacting my ability to successfully engage with other cultures? And more specifically, how are they impacting or perhaps prohibiting my effectiveness in helping to, to fight racism? And so, taking that first step to say, what are the cultural values? Um, that kind of guide how I see life and how I prefer to go about life? Um, And then what are some of the values of some of the other cultural groups that I am interacting with, particularly BIPOC people, right? So people who are, you know, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. Um, What are some of the differences and similarities? um, And how do I use that information to uh, perhaps adjust and adapt how I engage? And also perhaps challenge me to think about potential biases that may have uh, come as a result of how I've been socialized and how I've been raised. So that reflection is really important and very powerful. And then understanding that developing that that education piece of then understanding your own values up against the values and beliefs um, of other cultural groups and how those two mesh together and what adjustments you might need to make uh, is a really important and helpful first step towards helping to, to create, to, to become an anti-racist, but also to help contribute to your organization or institution uh, becoming an anti-racist organization.
0: You know, I'm, I'm listening, I'm like, yeah, it makes so much sense. I have to understand myself. And I'm just thinking that while it sounds simple, it, it also sounds like it could be a lot of work. You know, and and it could feel overwhelming to say, oh, I have to think about this every time I'm engaging with something, you know. Yeah. And but when you are training people on cultural intelligence, is that a reaction? And then how do you talk to them about, you know, developing this skill set and that process? Sure. And it it certainly can feel
1: overwhelming to some people sometimes. But I think sometimes. But I think um, if you help people understand that. You know, like when it, like with anything else, you know, the more you practice it, the better you become and the more comfortable you become and the more natural it is. And it becomes like, just like your, you know, your inclinations before you learn this new information are sort of natural and you do it by default. Uh, the same thing will happen once you develop your intelligence, right? So, um, you know, it, it does take a commitment, right? And it does take a conscious effort um, to and. T- to be more th- mindful, uh, but it also is something that as you practice it, it gets better, right? So when we think about the CQ framework, there are those four capabilities, your drive, which is all about your motivation, confidence, and persistence when engaging across cultures. And then the second capability is your knowledge, your understanding about how cultures are similar and how they're different. That third capability is then the strategy piece. So I'm motivated, I'm confident, and I've developed some knowledge, but then how do I use that to inform how I'm going to interact? Um, And then that, that fourth is what we call CQ action and that's all about behavior change, what behaviors might be appropriate or inappropriate in that in this situation. So the, the key is for people to understand that framework, and then once that framework gets sort of ingrained into their psyche and understanding, And then they're able to um, naturally be able to adapt that to any cross-cultural exchange that they will have, including, right, dealing with someone from a different race. And so it it really, again, goes back to really getting a good understanding of the framework and practicing it, practice using it and developing that skill. And it really does get easier um, and more comfortable. It, it may be a more comfortable becoming uncomfortable, right? So um, mm-hmm. not comfortable where it just becomes a breeze and you don't think anything about it. It becomes more comfortable, even being even in uncomfortable situations, to say that I may not feel super comfortable in this situation, but I have the skill set to navigate it, right? And I know that I'm going to be better off. The interaction has a much higher chance of being successful because I now have the skill to be able to navigate through it.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I, you know, it, whenever I think of when I tried to learn something new, the thing that immediately comes to mind for me is trying to learn how to eat with chopsticks. Mm-hmm. Um, Because I literally, it was so difficult. Like they never seemed to meet when I was first trying to do it. And I, it felt impossible. And now, you know, like after practice, it, it has become something where I can pick them up and, and use them much more regularly. And I think so often, When they are skills that we we can't always see, right, like the chopsticks, we can't always see, oh, wow, now I'm able to hit a ball so much farther in baseball or, you know, I've now been able to run long distance run. Sometimes it's harder to see that measurable growth um, and harder to think about the things that we're learning as skills and as capabilities similar to you know, muscle memory for other things, but we, we do know how to do it, right? Yeah. And we've done it for many other things and we can we can actually do it. It's not just learning a list of things to memorize, it's really learning a new skill set. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think, you know, um, one of the ways to sort of measure your growth, I mean, you can take, of course, the CQ assessment and take it again to see if you've, if you've seen some growth, but even just reflecting on Um, your, your cross-cultural interactions. And specifically, since we're talking about race, you know, your, your interactions with others from a different race, even just reflecting on the different experiences and saying, you know, how did that experience go? You know? um, And it actually went quite well. And, you know, it's because I was much more conscious, right. Of those Mm -hmm. dynamics that we talked about earlier. And so even just reflecting on your success in interactions can be very motivating um, and a reminder that you're growing uh, and that, again, each time it gets better and better and better.
0: So how, you know, we're I think as individuals who are really committed to this work, this could be a, a great tool for them to use to help them along and give them a, a framework to kind of grab onto and start working towards being an anti-racist What in this current context, what are the skills and capabilities that workplaces can cultivate uh, within their own culture, within their employees to support anti-racism? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things
1: that they can do, you know, outside of skills, I I would just start with, you know, leadership commitment, right? So that's more of a, not so much a skill as it is um, just this demonstrated commitment that as an organization, we are committed to becoming an anti-racist organization. So the more you can get leadership to take a stand and um, and 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 demonstrate uh, that commitment through some claimed actions. That's really important, right? And then from there, I think you can embark upon um, some learning and development for um, for your uh, employees. Uh, so that includes the, the cultural intelligence piece, which is all about skill development. So helping them develop the skills uh, that they need to. Um, work be- to become an anti racist and to contribute to creating an anti racist organization. But then, just education in terms of helping them understand why this conversation is so important. Um, what is the historical context behind it? Um, what role perhaps has their own organization perhaps played in perpetuating racism and racist systems, even if not intentional, right? So, there's a whole education piece to the conversation that's really important alongside developing uh, individual skills by taking them through CQ training and other trainings. Um, And then I think just taking uh, time to um, hold some listening sessions, you know, particularly with um, employees who are uh, your black and brown employees, uh, or who are part of the marginalized and underrepresented groups in the organization, just to listen to them uh, and give create space for them to share their experiences. That's a really powerful learning opportunity for those who are part of the majority culture. Um, and that learning helps really develop their CQ knowledge. So it's still tied to the CQ framework, right? The more they know, mm. right, that then informs their thinking around how they might need to adjust in their interactions, but also how they might need to adjust um, certain policies and practices and procedures that they may have influence over uh, in the organization or within their own department. Um, And then I think the other piece is building in some way to measure the work. Um, So, you know, it's a common, my answer is a combination of skill development, but also uh, some other pieces that really can make up a more comprehensive approach to moving towards becoming an anti-racist organization.
0: Yeah. So when we, when you talk about leadership, taking a stand and a, a commitment, what do you say to the people who maybe say, well, I'm not a leader in the organization, but I want to do something, yeah. right? I want to do something here. Where, how do they begin this process? And and maybe they're a management manager of a small team or uh, just on a team. How could they be a part of Bringing this into the work, the yeah. workplace. Everybody
1: can play a role regardless of your role and regardless of whether or not you are in a leadership position or not. So the first step is, again, that whole personal development journey that you should commit to, right? So thinking about how do I develop my understanding and knowledge? Um, and that could be through, in my skills, right? So skills, meaning how can mm-hmm. I work to improve my cultural intelligence? So they might take the CQ assessment uh, themselves and uh, see what, where they fall and then make a commitment. There's a part of the feedback report that they get when they complete the CQ assessment. It includes an action plan. And so they can identify some specific steps that they can take based on their results on how they can improve their CQ. So that's, that's one thing that they can do to, to continue on their own personal journey to grow. Um, And then, alongside that skill development, develop their knowledge. Right. So, there's so many resources out there um, today that uh, that people can read on in terms of you know racism in America and the the history and and also present day challenges. There's so much research and data (laughs) uh, to support uh, that racism is is still alive and well and and we and how we see it through a lot of the inequities uh, that are that permeate all of our systems and processes across a wide range of industries and, and sectors. So there's that commitment that they can make just for their own development, developing the skills and developing the knowledge, right? And both of those again, fall in that CQ framework. Um, And then um, where they do have influence, again, looking at the systems and policies and practices that, um, You know, I always challenge people to ask a simple question, right? If we really do claim that we want to create a more anti-racist organization or become more diverse and equitable and inclusive, you know, when you look at your systems and you look at your policies and practices, ask the question, does this policy or practice serve as a benefit or barrier to our claim commitment to become more diverse? And if it's a barrier, if it does not support Uh, your efforts to attract more people from different backgrounds and to retain them uh, or to um, promote them to leadership positions. If it doesn't help do those things, then you might want to look at how we need to make some adjustments, right? So looking at those policies and practices that are just within their own sphere of influence and making the necessary changes there when they don't serve as a benefit to um, efforts to become more diverse, inclusive, and anti-racist.
0: That's really helpful. I think so oftentimes we, at least I've heard in many conversations that we feel as though if I can't do the big change, then it's not worth it. Or if I can't do that big change, then am I really making a difference? And what I hear you saying is that even when you're talking about shifting and having an entire organization focused on this work, it starts with people. It starts with people making their own commitment, taking a stand, claiming action, doing their own skill development reflection. And then, yes, of course, it must move beyond that, right? It must move beyond my own reflection to addressing policy and practices that benefit or or serve as a barrier to learning and development and listening. But that's so encouraging. And also just something I want to highlight that it doesn't always have to be the biggest Thing to be important when we're talking about. This Absolutely. Part. And when you think about the cumulative effect of a bunch of small
1: efforts and small wins, that's big, right? So if Sandra is making a commitment to do at least two things, you know, I, I give people very reasonable, you know, and realistic goals to set, right? If Sandra makes a commitment that in the next three months, she's going to do two things that are going to contribute to her organization. Uh, becoming anti-racist. And those two things, one of them might be an individual growth thing. The other thing might be some way that I can impact the system or policy or practice. And if Sandra's doing that and you've got a team of, let's say, 50 people in it, if everybody is committing, that's 100 things, right? 100 new things that we can do. That's that's huge when we when we mm. look at the cumulative effect of that. So you're absolutely right. Those small efforts, those small, meaningful efforts. So you want to be thoughtful about it and you want, to, you want to make sure that you're looking at things that really are going to help develop your skills and things that are really going to help, again, change systems and, and policies and practices. But if you've got a lot of people doing a, um, two or three small things, uh, that can change, that can completely change the trajectory of an organization in terms of its, its commitment and its progress.
0: I would imagine that's, I mean, that's at least encouraging for me when I think of, you know, not maybe always having the top role and it's encouraging to me to say like, well, my passion for this can, if I just influence my small team of five, right. And we all make this commitment. That's, you know, 10 things that are happening on a monthly basis that we're doing that can, that can start to shift things. And then maybe someone else will be interested in why we're doing that and you know, become interested in it as well. Because so often when we talk about anti-racism and our country and just all those things, we we miss sometimes the personal and the systemic approach, right? We either want to just change policy, forgetting that if we're not aware of our cultural values, if we're not aware of our own lenses that we're bringing, we're still not going to effectively work within a new framework.
1: Even That's if we exactly right, it. yeah, you have to do both. And, and the same goes for if we just focus all of our energy on individual development and we don't consider the systems, our efforts are going to be limited. So it takes both, right? And when you think of an organization, yeah. it, it's it's nothing but a bunch of people who, who, and those people make those policies, right? So there's this massive interconnectedness with all of it, right? And so we, but we have to take sort of this dual approach to addressing individual improvement and, um, and system change and holding both building and accountability processes for both.
0: Absolutely. So you've shared um, some steps that an organization can take leadership to take a stand, learning and development, focusing on educating folks, giving folks an opportunity for that, holding listening sessions, creating ways to measure the impact of these initiatives. If, you know, if an organization is like, this is brand new to me, you know, how do I even start to investigate what, you know, a cultural intelligence commitment would look like? How do I even begin to think about that first step of taking a stand or deciding things? What are those first practical steps that an individual or an organization can make toward, to begin yes. this journey? I think,
1: I think the first step is just even having some, making a commitment to have the conversation uh, so often, you know, we won't even have the conversation around why this is important, right? And uh, why is it important for our organization? And, and then having those honest conversations about how serious we're going to be about change. So I think that first step is just having those conversations with key stakeholders within the organization, um, if that's possible, and then I think beyond that, once you, know, you, you, you say, okay, we really do want to do something about this, we really do want to uh, create change in the organization and move us in this direction of becoming an anti-racist organization, then I think, um, again, if you can get leadership uh, to the table uh, and to get their buy-in and then their leadership on this is another piece um, and then I think that third step is where the, the learning and development and education comes in, right? So that's where, you know, you can begin to initiate some, some training just to get everybody on the same page around uh, this is what we're trying to do and we need to, all of us have to be a part of this process and grow. And so that, that, that learning and development piece uh, is important so that's i would say that first conversation how do we get started let's let's first have some conversation around how serious are we about this and um, and really mm. then understand what what are the implications what does this mean for what we need to do um, and then secondly uh, hopefully leadership is leading that conversation but if they're not maybe you're maybe you're in the middle right or maybe you're in the front line but then can you get to leadership and and challenge them to to engage and, and ultimately lead this work. And then from there, really commit to some, some learning and development and education across the organization, right? And then, you know, and then moving yeah. into, um, so then you're, you know, you're putting yourself on a pathway where people are starting to develop not just awareness, not just sensitivity, but they're developing the skills, right? We talk about that all the time in terms of the distinction of CQ um, and then starting to look at systems,
0: yeah what I love about the steps that you take is um we talk- I've talked a number of times on the podcast about the stages of change and how so often people want to jump from there's five stages pre contemplation I don't think there's an issue contemplation I realize there might be one you know to planning action uh involvement and maintenance and one of the things that I've noticed is that people runs they notice something and they want to jump immediately to action, but what I so appreciate about. The steps that you just laid out for us is that there's an in-between one that planning of those conversations about do we all understand why this is important and how committed are we to actually making change because change is hard change doesn't happen overnight and so what really is our commitment to this work and to persevering when maybe it seems like we're stalled or it's not moving quite as quickly as we want to. That's such an yeah. important and, step. And then and also doing an honest assessment of where you
1: really are as an organization. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, and, and that is, I think that ties to your comment about people wanting to jump to action. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen, you know, organizations want to commit to this work, and that's good. So the will is there, um, but then they jump to action, and but those actions, are, they are what I call activity based versus results based. Um, so they do, mm. they just start doing stuff, right? Because we want to say we're doing stuff, and they have no idea if the stuff that they're doing is the the right things to do, and they have not built in any way to measure. The effectiveness of those efforts, and and again, they may not even tie to where you are as an organization. You may be at a stage where we really do, people don't even really see the see the value of this. They don't really see um, how critical it is, and how we even perhaps have been a contributor to some of these uh, inequities. And and if you if you if the organization is at that stage, and you're trying to jump way ahead and do some things that are only appropriate for when you get to the stage where, you know, people are, have skills and now we're looking at systems. So you have to do that assessment to know because that then has to inform what are the appropriate action steps um, yeah. that we need to take in order yeah. to move forward in, in the right way and in a meaningful way and in a way that we can measure.
0: Absolutely. No, I can I can picture that. Right. I've been in so many meetings where, cause I think this is our natural habit, right? We are like, Oh, okay. Then we'll just do it. Uh, we want to move quickly and we want to show something and, or we don't bring it up because we want to wait until we right. know what those mm-hmm. steps are. Right. And so it's that both of like, start the conversation, even if you don't know what the next actions are and use the conversations to then determine yeah. what your actions are. Right. Like don't, don't jump, jump ahead of yourselves. Right. That's you don't start like saying, oh, I want to run a half marathon right. and just run it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you have to train to get there and figure yeah. out what that training is going to look like. And that's what cultural intelligence right. can do, right? It tells you where you're beginning and how, like you said, it has an action plan built into it to help you grow and develop this skill set and capability so that our intentions and desires can really match our impact and our yeah. capabilities. And, don't, and using
1: that that marathon analogy, you know. Don't, like you said, don't, you you know, you know, you've got to practice and prepare for that, but don't also uh, get so intimidated by the idea that you, you're paralyzed and you don't do anything. Right. So you've got to, it feels too big. It feels too overwhelming. It feels too far, far fetched. So you just don't do anything and you continue business as usual.
0: Yeah. Well, and that, that reminds me too, you know, that is why folks like myself and like the cultural intelligence center exist because sometimes it can feel overwhelming to embark on something like this on your own. And we say it all the time here on the engaging great podcast. You do not have to do it alone. Working on ourselves does not have to be done by ourselves and doing this kind of development work also doesn't have to be done alone. We, there are trainers and experts like Dr. Upton who are available and willing to help, uh, you and your organization work and move towards these exactly. different things. Yep, absolutely. So Dr. Upton, thank you so much for joining me today on Engaging Gray Podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking with you this morning and I wish you all the best and we'll continue. Absolutely. To stay thank you so
1: much for the opportunity. And I, I just want to say to your audience, I know you and I were talking earlier that you you tend to attract a younger millennial audience, and that got me pretty excited because you know uh, that generation as well as those following them are the future. And I know that they are very positive and a very optimistic generation, um, and very open. Um, and so the perfect the perfect group to, to lead us into uh, the not only lead us into the future, but also to lead us in the present. And so I'm excited, and I hope that. Um, There were a few things that were shared here that 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 group in specific um, can can take and and run with.
0: Me too. Here's to hoping, Dr. Upton. We'll see what we'll see. Thank you. You too. Have a great day.